What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. This is the one-stop shop for all things coaching. We talk a lot about training and nutrition because that is what my passion is. That is what I'm a coach for. But we do dive even deeper. We go way further than that. And we touch on entrepreneurship, mindset, confidence, lifestyle, stress, everything personal growth. Like we literally touch on damn near about anything. Um, and today is a Q&A. And you're probably going to hear questions that have nothing to do with fitness or training. Um, we actually have quite a few, so I think there's going to be a couple in there. Uh, but my point being, guys, is this podcast is all about helping you grow as an individual and become more successful in all areas of your life. I look at this as my opportunity to coach people around the world through their speakers, and I appreciate you being here with me today. If you are new to this show and you haven't heard it yet, please go check out our top four most listened to, most downloaded episodes so you can get an insight onto what this show is all about. I'm going to drop the links to those in the show notes below, and that is going to be the nutrition FAQ, the training FAQ, my personal journey into fitness, into training, into coaching, and then last but not least, nutritional periodization, which is something I am very interested in, I'm known for inside the industry. Now, let's get on to today's episode. Today is a Q&A, and man, we have a lot of questions. One thing I wanted to preface, guys, is you'll notice a lot of questions coming from two places. Number one is Instagram. I post for questions on my story quite often, and if you want to get your questions answered, that is one of the best ways to do it. Shoot me a DM. You can email me as well, but basically, it's an open-door policy with my inboxes, guys. I am here to help you no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, um, who is listening to this. Reach out if you need help. Reach out if you have a question. You can do that on my Instagram, at Cody.BoomBoom. The other place a lot of these questions come from is actually our private forum. So a lot of people don't know, but we have a private forum for only listeners and purchasers of the ebooks. So we offer quite a few ebooks, Functional Muscle 1, Functional Muscle 2, Density, the Power Building Program, FIT, which is Functional Intensity Training, Nutrition Hierarchy, the Nutrition Performance Manual, and I can keep going on. We have quite a few out there, guys. Um, so if you want an opportunity to get some knowledge, get some education, go grab one of our ebooks. They're cheap and they have a ton of value in there, but one of the coolest parts about them is it gives you access access to this private group where you get access to me and you get access to the other individuals who listen to this podcast. And every week I post up for questions in there and I get a ton of really in-depth questions and I get to answer those. So if you want access to that, you can go there. The last place to do this is over at boomboomperformance.com slash podcast. There's actually a question box form that you can fill out and ask me questions with. So um, just wanted to preface that because I know I read off these names and people are probably wondering like, well, shit, how do I get access to Cody? How do I ask him questions? So that's exactly where. Now, um, we have a lot of questions today. I mean, uh, protein, uh, the new Kevin Hall study, macros and uh, carb cycling, George Costanza from Seinfeld, um, late night strategies when you're in a fat loss phase, stretching, bro science. Like we have so many good topics today. Um, and we're going to get into a lot of things. So I'm excited for you to be here. I'm excited for you to listen and I'm excited to coach you through this Q and a guys. So without any further ado, let's jump into this episode. The first question comes from my man, the real Matt Barkus. This is actually a client of mine. Um, shout out to Matt. He is absolutely crushing it. Um, consistently seeing consistent results. Um, this is a, I used him as an example on my story, man. You're just fucking crushing it. I'm really happy with the results you're seeing. Um, one thing I wanted to point out is every time I see 
the real blank or official blank, I always think like a celebrity is commenting on my shit. It's really funny. Um, so it always cracks me up when people have the real whatever. But one of my best friends, he's actually a groomsman in my wedding. I'm going to crack up if he's listening to this. I'm going to actually, as you're listening to this, I'm actually in Vegas right now. So um, this today is Friday the 30th. I am on my bachelor party. Of course, my best men decided to get me the earliest possible flight. It leaves at 5 a.m. in the morning. So thank you guys for allowing me to wake up at 3 in the morning. That's that a great surprise. But um, I'm in Vegas, probably by the pool while you're listening to this. But one of the, my groomsmen who's with me, his his name on Instagram, I think, is the official Cameron Hayes. And I always like see the official. I'm like, man, nobody's trying to steal your name on Instagram. <laughs> nobody's out there trying to claim your name. Like the real Lebr- LeBron James needs to have that because there's probably some phony accounts out there. Um, the official... Whoever, James Bond, uh, whatever actor you want to put out there, whatever celebrity, whatever, the the official David Beckham kind of thing. Um, it always just cracks me up because I always like – I always double take and I'm like, oh, shit, who's commenting on my stuff? Oh, never mind. <laughs> like it's just, just another guy, just my friend. Um, shout out to Matt. I love you, man. I'm not giving you a hard time. It just cracks me up because that was the first thing I thought of was my, my good friend who I give shit about having uh, the official in front of his name and nobody's trying to steal his name. But um, – Anyway, his question, he actually has a really good question. Protein is protein, but why aren't all carbs the same? And how that applies to the if it fits your macros method. So this is why I actually don't completely agree with the if it fits your macros method. I agree with flexible dieting and that, you know, macros as a whole are kind of our our metrics, our tools, our numbers, our guidelines, our targets to hit. We can kind of fit anything within that range. As long as we do so, we're going to see results. Yes. The problem is, is protein is not just protein and carbs aren't just carbs. And the reason is that because there's complexities inside of carbohydrates. Um, Different carbohydrates have different breakdowns of types of glucose. So carbs from fruit versus starch versus different types of starch is all different, right? White rice is pure starch. Fruit is sometimes pure fructose. Fruit is sometimes highly fiber, fibrous, and fructose. Sometimes starches are highly starchy and fibrous. So it really depends, right? Carbs from uh, broccoli, for example, are going to have a much uh, lessened blood sugar response than carbs from white rice. Um, same thing with white or uh, white rice versus Pop-Tarts. They might both be very high on the glycemic index. However, I would say the gastric emptying, so the rate at which your body will actually absorb and utilize that carbohydrate is going to be better with rice. It's easier to break down for your body. Um, I think digestion-wise, it's going to be different as well. So we have to factor that in, not only because something might have more fiber, but how easy is it for your body to break it down? You know, like I can eat a Pop-Tart, but it's not going to be as easy for my body to break down compared to a sweet potato or rice. So there's a lot of complexities inside of every type of food um, in the nutrient level inside of that. So, and this is, again, why if it fits your macros isn't always the best. You know, you might get 50 carbs from two different things, but you might get way more nutrients from one thing. So a good example is, again, white rice and sweet potatoes. Both 50 grams of carbs from a starch. Cool. Both easy to digest. Cool. Sweet potatoes have much more micronutrients inside of it, the density of micronutrients compared to white rice. They also have more fiber. They also have more bulk, and it's harder to actually break down a high amount. So I can eat way more white rice and easily break it down, digest it, and the gastric emptying of that, so how fast my body can take it, break it down, use it for fuel is a lot quicker than sweet potato. So a sweet potato for lunch Hours later after my workout is a great choice because it's high fiber, high nutrient availability, 
it's filling. I'm probably going to choose that over white rice. But a meal right after my workout, I'm probably going to choose white rice because it's quicker, it's easier to digest, and it's going to be more efficient to uh, refuel glycogen stores. So carbs aren't carbs because the time you use them, um, whether we're talking about how quickly you can utilize it for fuel or recovery, or we're just talking about it not even being involved with recovery and you just want more micronutrient availability, that plays a big role. How much nutrients you're getting, how much fiber you're getting, how your body handles that carb. Certain people don't handle certain carbs as well. So there's a lot that goes into it that the if it fits your macro crowd doesn't factor in. Um, and in fact, this is, dude, you're the perfect example to ask this question. So Matt was at kind of a plateau and I looked at his diet and I was like, Hey man, like, I don't want to drop calories on you if we don't have to, like our goal is to maintain muscle. Um, and he still looks jacked, which is the point I was like, but I, I really think that you can get a little more greens in your diet. Like you don't get very many greens very often. Um, let's, let's try to incorporate three cups of greens a day. So we bumped up his greens to three cups a day. We didn't change his macros, but it changed the composition of his carbohydrates. His vegetables that he was getting in are carbohydrates technically, but it's a different composition. When we did that, he broke his plateau and started losing weight. We didn't change his macros. We changed the blood sugar response. We changed the micronutrient availability. We changed the fiber he's getting, right? We changed the digestion. So carbs aren't always carbs, and there's a time and place for if it fits your macros, and there's a time and place for not. Like a good example, again, I'm in Vegas right now. I'm if it fitting your macros it up right now. <laughs> I am doing it. Um, I'm fitting my macros with beer, probably a couple Moscow mules, um, and some protein shakes to hit my protein intake for the day. That's not a method for sustainability. It's not a method for good gut health. It's not a method for great hypertrophy, but it's a method that you take when you're on your bachelor party and you want to have fun and still maintain your results, right? I don't want to get fat on this trip. I don't care if I'm not building a ton of muscle while I'm gone, but I do care if I get fat. So, you know, there's a time and place. Uh, protein is the same thing. Protein is not just protein because protein from plants has less availability uh, as far as amino acids go. There's not as much leucine in there. There's not as much anabolic response. They're not going to get a huge muscle protein synthetic response from vegetables compared to meat or dairy or protein powder. Um, so protein is not protein. And casein and steak, for example, steak is harder to break down. It's fattier. It's uh, It's just – it's a thicker, harder meat. Red meat in general is harder for your body to break down. Therefore, that protein source is going to take longer than chicken. Casein protein is slower digesting, so that's going to take longer than a whey or, a again, chicken, turkey, things like that. So all these things factor in. Um, eggs, whole eggs are going to take longer because there's fat in it. Flat, fat slows down digestion. So no macronutrient is, is equal. Um, they all have – different proponents that matter and change and differ how we need them and why we need them. That's why, but it's, it's all part of the hierarchy, right? Like when we look at the, the pyramid made famous by Eric Helms, we can kind of say like, you know what calorie, like adherence is the big thing. Calories are next. Um, macros are next. And then we look at micros and meal timing, things like that. And that's when we can kind of start getting nitty gritty and going, okay, we're at a result. We're hitting a plateau and we want to go further. This is where we start tweaking these other things. He had another question. Will the day of eating like shit make you feel tired the next day? 100%. Um, this goes back to everything I just talked about. The way your body breaks food down, the way your body is able to take a food, digest it, break it down, absorb it, and then utilize it for fuel, that's a fucking process. Um, so if you're not eating food that agrees with your body, that process is going to be delayed and slowed down and, and just have some trouble in general making it happen. So those kind of things are going to play a big role in your energy. Um, not to mention the stress involved too. So if you have food that just doesn't agree with you and it creates stress, 
that stress is going to slow you down neuro neurologically. That's going to be hard. It's going to make you fatigued. Um, alcohol, same thing. Alcohol stresses your body out. You're going to feel fatigued and tired the next day. So it, it absolutely will. Um, that's why you have to pick and choose your battles, you know, like, okay, like for me, like Saturday is usually the day where I'll be like, you know what, I'm going to have whatever. Um, I usually don't track macros. I kind of just eat whatever Shannon wants to do for dinner. We'll just have fun, have some drinks. Um, but I eat a really light breakfast if, if not fast. Um, usually do like a protein shake, go work out and then have like a really light lunch basically. And then the next day I'll just do a little bit of fasting and I kind of make do for that. And I don't train on Sunday because I, I know I'm going to be tired and kind of feel like shit from eating whatever it was. So yeah, it can absolutely make you feel like shit. And you kind of got to plan those days accordingly. Eric Elliott would love your insight on the Kevin Hall study released in May regarding processed foods and weight gain when controlled for macros and calories. So I actually have it pulled up right now. And I think there was some debate about it because the, the this has been a highly debated topic and a lot of people trying to they have there's two camps, right? There's the clean eating camp and the macros camp and the macros camp, the quote unquote evidence based macro camp kind of talks about. You know, you can eat whatever you want. It doesn't matter if you eat processed foods. If it fits your macros, you're not going to gain weight. The clean eating group doesn't agree. Um, and now this study comes out and says, ultra-processed diets cause excess caloric intake and weight gain. An independent randomized controlled trial of ad libitin food intake. So this is kind of trying to prove, um, and, and I saw a bunch of links, so I clicked, like, Eric, if I'm reading the wrong one, let me know. But this was the latest one, and it said 2019. So um, I'm assuming this is the right one. It's by Kevin Hall. So basically, uh, investigated 20 inpatient adults who were exposed to ultra-processed versus unprocessed diets for 14 days each in random order. The ultra-processed diet caused increased ad libitum energy intake and weight gain despite being matched to the unprocessed diet for presented calories, sugar, fat, sodium, fiber, and mac macronutrients. Um, I didn't do any other studying besides reading this. I didn't even hear about the study, to be honest with you, which I'm surprised about. But I think this is them trying to end the debate, and I don't think it does because the reality – and I'm not on either side because I don't believe in an un, or a, a ultra-processed diet. I think an ultra-processed diet is not good. Like the picture they use is a burger versus like salmon and quinoa with lemon on top. Like it's not – like even if you're controlling – so the, what they did is they controlled calorie, sugar, fat, fiber, and micronutrients. So their macros are on point. Their calories are on point. They had the same amount of sugar, the same amount of fat, same amount of fiber. So they're trying to rule out everything to say like, well, oh, well, you didn't think this. Oh, you didn't think this, which is a really good study. The problem that I see with this is – and this is what people have to watch out for. The ultra-processed diet caused increased energy intake and weight gain. So think about that. What is energy intake? It's calories. Therefore, the calories were not matched. The other part of this, diets were presented in random order and matched for provided calories. Below it, that it says unprocessed diet for presented calories. So when we look at the word presented, what does that mean? It means what's presented on the label. It means that this ultra-processed box of crackers or chips or this burger or whatever is presented this way. If we go to packaged goods the error rate on a label is 20 to 25%. Does that mean you shouldn't consume any packaged goods? No, it doesn't mean that. I do. Like, we all do. But it means that you you shouldn't have an ultra-processed diet. It shouldn't mean that your full diet is processed. So I think when you're doing a study and you fill an entire diet with processed foods and you match calories, you're not really matching calories because at the end of the day, if every piece of food you're eating has an error margin of calories being 20 to 25% up or down from what is presented – you're, you're shooting in the dark. 
You have no idea what you're actually consuming. Um, and that's the reality with processed foods, which is why I agree with an unprocessed diet for 80 to 90%. Like 90% of your diet should be real meats, real produce, so on and so forth. Like if we look at my diet Monday through Friday, I can honestly say the only processed food I eat out of a package is going to be protein powder um, and sh low sugar, so reduced sugar ketchup because I'm a ketchup guy. That's it. Everything else is um, whole eggs, egg whites. So I guess egg whites are, are packaged, but they're pure protein. So if that air margin gives me a little extra protein, I'm not too concerned about it. Um, white rice, sweet potatoes, tons of veggies, tons of fruit, meat. Literally my diet. I'll throw some ketchup on there, <laughs> ketchup and hot sauce. Those are my packaged things. So, but on the weekend, I will have like a protein bar if I'm in a rush, or I'll have some drinks, or I'll have some packaged foods, and that's when I do it. But that's 10% of my week, maybe. So I think it's important for people to read the study and realize that they're going off presented calories, and presented calories are not accurate on ultra-processed foods. Therefore, I feel like this completely rules itself out. Um, and I could be reading this completely wrong. Like I said, I haven't even – it's a – how many pages? It's a long, I mean, every study is a lot of pages, but I literally read one page, the first page. Yeah, August 2019. Wait, that doesn't make sense. How is that dated August 2019? Huh, weird. It's future dated. But um, no, I think it's, I, I, I like, yeah, this is really weird. It says August 6, 2019, which kind of confuses me because that hasn't happened yet. Um, but now I went to it. So I, I'm going to link this in the show notes so you guys can see it too. I know I'm kind of like browsing on the internet while you're listening to me, so I apologize. But um, if I'm reading this co correctly, basically what happened is an ultra-processed diet caused excess caloric intake and weight gain. So basically when they tested how many calories they actually took in, it was higher. Well, duh, processed foods are rounded, so it's not very accurate. I don't think this rules out macros and flexible dieting being a quality way to eat. I think it just shows that unprocessed, ultra processed foods probably shouldn't be the bulk of your diet. Um, and I think that's pretty obvious, but I'm glad they did the study. I think it's all helpful to the, to the overall cause. Caddy Zlock. It's a Caddy Z Lock. Loke. Lotch. Caddy's Lock. When counting macros, do you decrease your carbs on rest days or just keep them the same? I personally decrease them. Um, because I'm in a fat loss phase. If I'm in maintenance, I do not. If I'm focused on performance, I do not. So I think it's a tool. Carb cycling is a tool. And this is just where we bring carbs down on days we're less active. So on days you're resting or just doing light cardio, maybe you bring calories down. However, what I would say is if you are training really hard, if you're focused on muscle growth, if you're focused on performance, if you're focused on maintenance, I probably wouldn't do this because carbs don't just immediately go in your system, right? We store glucose and we use it within 36 hours. So what that means is in, in the leaner you are, the more depleted you are, the less ca calories and carbs you're taking in, the shorter that window is. So basically if, if I have um, plenty of glycogen stored, I'm in a calorie surplus, like I'm always going to have fuel ready to go. If I'm super, super lean, I'm pretty depleted, I can eat a meal and I'll be ready to use that fuel in a few hours. So pre-workout nutrition doesn't get ruled out, but what I'm saying here is that sometimes it takes time. So if you're trying to perform or really focus on your strength or anything like that and I don't eat a lot of carbs today, 
but I have a hard training session in the morning, I'm going to hurt my training session tomorrow. I'd rather have my glycogen stores filled out today for tomorrow. However, during a fat loss phase, we also know that you're more insulin sensitive around training. Therefore, calories and carbs probably should be higher around training if you're going to choose any day to do it. And from a mental perspective, it feels good to have more food pre and post workout and usually people's appetite goes up from strength training. So during a calorie deficit, sometimes it can be advantageous from an adherence standpoint that if we need to create a weekly caloric deficit, I'm going to bring your calories down on low days and up on training days. Right, it's just it's just common sense for adherence. Um, there is some insulin sensitivity. I find that it works really well for um, keeping people full, like giving people a good pump, and then giving them a day where they don't have to eat a bunch of food. So, so some people reverse dieting. I'll do this too because they're just not that hungry, or we're trying to build muscle and we're trying to add more and more calories. And they're like, man, it's hard for me to eat this much. On I just had a client shout out to Brad say the same thing. Like, man, it's hard for me to eat that much food. It's kind of stressing out my gut. On non-training days, on training days, I soak it up. I'm, I'm hungry. It's fine. But on non-training days, it's kind of rough. So we adjusted and we dropped his calories down. So there is a time and place for it. I do this as well. Um, I only have one rest day per week. So it's literally just one low-carb day per week. Um, I'm doing an upper-lower, upper-lower, upper-lower split. So it's six days alternating upper-lowers, um, which is pretty intense. Uh, the reason I'm doing it is because my leg days are very – chill. They're very low intensity because I can't do a whole lot. So I'm just like rehabbing still, um, and starting to kind of lift, but I do it because it just works for me having one day low. I'm not as hungry on those days. I do a little fasting. It just works. So I think it is a good method and it can work and it's been around forever, but I don't think you need to. And it's all kind of relative to performance. Um, if you're in a fat loss phase, it can work though. Um, but I think most importantly, you don't, I want you to know, like you don't need to keep them the same and you don't need to decrease them. It all comes down to that weekly caloric balance, which I talk about in part two of the Nutrition for Fat Loss series. So I will link that in the show notes if you want to watch or uh, listen to it. Digital Barbell, what would you guess George Costanza's TDEE is, which is Total Daily Energy Expenditure? You know, I thought about this one, of course, because I love Seinfeld and I had to really think. George Costanza is five foot five. Yes, I Googled that. He's five foot five. He is a heavier guy. He's a little chubby. So I would guess him to be anywhere between, this is a wide range, but 170 to 190. I'd say 175 to 185, let's say. So I, I shot right in the middle. I'm going to say he's 180 pounds. He's got a little weight to lose. He doesn't train from what I can see and from what I've seen on the show. He's not a big gym guy. However, he walks a lot. He lives in New York. He's constantly going up and down the stairs of Jerry's apartment. Um, he walks in that door five times an episode which has got to be a lot of times going up the stairs to get to the apartment. He's moving around the city. He doesn't drive very often. He's usually walking, it seems like. So my guess is that he's actually burning a lot of calories from uh, some non-exercise activity thermogenesis. He's also very sedentary, though, because he has desk jobs at every job he's ever had. So my guess would be that his TDEE would actually be about 2,250 calories. And I did that by taking his weight. And his activity level of what I guess it to be um, at a low training. So I did very low training. And 2025 is going to be really high for him, I think. So I would maybe even bring it down to 2000. But I looked at this question and I was like, okay, whatever. And then I thought, I was like, you know what? I'm actually going to consider this. And I actually do think his total daily energy intake uh, expenditure would probably be around 2000 because he's walking so much and because he has high stress levels. That guy gets pissed all the time. 
he is always worked up, always freaking out, which is why I love George Costanza. But I had to take that into consideration. That alone is neat, but also stress levels being pretty high. He's going to be burning calories and needing carbs to kind of blunt that cortisol response. Um, so me being a coach, I want to take care of uh, George and give him a few extra calories for that stress. Um, and fun fact about George, George's dad inside the TV show is actually Ben Stiller's dad in real life. Fun fact for you. Eric Gaelic. Strategies for later at night when a fat loss diet gets further along and willpower begins to fade. Also, is it common to wake up in the early morning hours with very strong cravings to eat? I have had this occur when dieting to get my body fat percentage in the single digits. Um, yes, it is common, and it's just a matter of your metabolism is still going. Your body is craving more food, and you're in a caloric deficit, man. It's not a bad thing, but it does happen. Um, I, what I do is I shift more protein into my late night meal when that occurs. Cause that happens to me a lot too. It actually just recently happened, um, uh, where I wake up and I'm like, I am, I get up, my alarm goes off 4:45 AM, 5 AM. So I don't wake up earlier than that, but because of hunger. But when I wake up at that time, I'm like f- starving, it's growling, it's angry and I'm ready to eat. So when I notice that, I bring protein up in my last meal. So let's say you're eating 40 grams of protein per meal. Maybe bump it up to 55 grams, maybe 60 grams. More than you need to get that muscle protein synthetic response. But it's not going to – if your total daily intake is on point, it's not going to cause any issues. And it's just going to fill you up more because protein is a little more satiating. And I actually think there's a benefit to having a little extra slow digestive protein, whether it's casein, steak, whatever it is. Um, so have protein at a higher rate, some fats with that to slow down the digestion and allow that to slowly digest across the night. So I typically, and I will even bring somebody's protein up past one gram per pound while they're in a big deficit in order to be able to do things like that and keep satiation, satiety, I almost said satiation. Is satiation a word or is it satiety? I know it's satiety because satiety is a word, but I don't know if satiation is a word. Now I'm talking to myself. Um, I bring protein up in that late meal because I do find that it helps with that, and it's not going to store as fat. It's only going to aid your fat loss um, because of adherence, because of cravings, because of satiety, so on and so forth. Um, And it burns more calories. There's a big thermic effect to food with protein. But strategies for late at night uh, when fat loss diets get further along, will power begins to fade. Um, I would – I personally, like my one hack for that is to create a dessert that's actually kind of healthy and sticks in your macros. So this is why I actually do have protein powder every day. It's the only meal I have protein powder, um, but I take chocolate casein protein. I use diametized rich chocolate protein. I put uh, a couple tablespoons of PB2, either the regular peanut butter or the chocolate peanut butter, but it's that powdered peanut butter. I put like a scoop and a half of protein, so it's about – 45 grams of protein there, and then the PB2 adds a little bit. Um, So I'm usually getting anywhere between 50 and 60 grams of protein, depending on how much macros I have left in that bowl. Put water in it just to give it to like a pudding consistency. Um, If I have the extra carbs, I'll slice up a banana and put that in there. That's typically what I like to do. If I don't, I'll just leave it as is, and I put it in the freezer. Put it in the freezer for a bit. It gets kind of frozen, but it's still like a cold pudding texture, and I just eat that at night. It gets rid of my cravings. It gets rid of my sweet tooth after dinner. It's late at night. It's really filling. It's very slow digestive. Easily fits your macros. It's not super high calorie. It's going to contribute to your goal better of maintaining muscle mass while uncut, um, and it fills you up. So that's always my – I literally do it almost every night because it just – it cures that craving. I just never even think twice about eating anything else. Um, So I think that's the biggest key. Um, And then the other thing I would recommend is as you need more willpower for a diet, 
you should begin to start eliminating other things in your life you you need willpower for as well. So if you're constantly like, the, the crazy thing about willpower is they've actually done studies on this and it's actually limited. You do not have unlimited willpower because your brain uses glucose. So you actually use energy in order to make decisions throughout the day. So the more decisions you make, you get decision fatigue. The more willpower you use, you get willpower fatigue. So now you're going through the day using up all your tank of willpower and decisions. So by the time you get late at night and you have to have willpower to stay on your fat loss diet, now you have issues because you don't have any left. So look at your day, audit your day, and decide like how often am I constantly using willpower? How often am I making decisions? And how much of that can I eliminate in order to make it easier at night? That would be my best recommendation. And, I re- and it sounds like kind of cheesy and crazy, but I, I really do think that works. Pro Burke, how important is stretching? Should I stretch even if I, it meant doing 10 minutes less of a, another restorative activity, sleeping, journaling, reading, in order to fit into my busy day? I've heard the only benefits of stretching come down to the time, come down, come from the downtime not from the actual muscle recovery. Um, so yeah, I would highly suggest if anybody wants to dig more into this uh, to read the recovery manual or the recovery guide or whatever it's called, but it's by Renaissance Periodization. Really good book about all this stuff and it kind of has a hierarchy of what you need to focus on for recovery. I do think stretching is overrated. Um, I, I, I find two applications for it. Number one, if you are extremely tight in an area, like overly tight, yeah, you could benefit from stretching. Um, Okay, so three three things. One, if you're overly tight, you could benefit from some stretching, but I'd have you consider that doing other things that downregulate your nervous system might actually release the tension. So doing things like PRI breathing or a massage or like you said, getting downtime to just calm your body down and release cortisol, release adrenaline, and get you into parasympathetic mode, and then try to stretch, is you won't have to really stretch as hard because your body will actually release that tension. I've done drills with people where we just take them through breathing, their nervous system calms down, and they go from not touching their toes to touching their toes. We didn't stretch their hamstrings. We calmed their nervous system down, and they had more range of motion. So sometimes it's just that. Um, if you want to be a flexible person, you got to stretch. So if, if your goal is like, I really want to be able to stretch super good, like that sounds really funny saying out loud. But if that's your goal, like you want to be super flexible or you want to get into yoga and be really good at the poses, like that's a specific goal. You should probably stretch. Um, and then the third place is for hypertrophy. So I will use this inside my training, like intraset stretching. They actually finally did a study on this, and it showed favorable gains for muscle size. But if I'm benching and I add some stre- pec stretches in between, I'm more likely to build a little bit more muscle in the chest. Um, it's, it's splitting hairs, but to an advanced lifter, like we'll take anything we can get. Um, so if you're not overly tight, if you don't care about being overly flexible, um, I, I don't think you should. I think you're – I would say – it's more important to get enough sleep, to journal, read, meditate, do things that are more restorative and actually calm your brain down and calm your nervous system down. Um, I think it's m- more beneficial to body composition and to overall health than stretching is. Amanda Jessica Sugin, can you explain with science or bro science? <laughs> I like that. What is happening to the body when someone, someone's body is recomping at maintenance calories and lifting heavy? How is it possible that you are still losing fat but weight if weight is staying the same and muscles are popping slash growing? It seems to defy needing to be in a surplus to build muscle. There's a couple uh, grammar, so that's why I was kind of pausing. But it's a good question, um, Amanda. I think that – I mean the reality is is fat weighs more than muscle. So a uh, – or 
muscle weighs more than fat. Sorry. So we can take a piece of fat that is the size of a rock, right? And then take a, a size of muscle that's the exact same size as the rock, and the muscle is going to weigh more. So what that does is, and I mean, if we're literally explaining why this happens, is like if you are burning one pound of fat and you gained one pound of muscle, the scale doesn't change. However, you look a lot smaller because that pound of fat is much larger surface area-wise compared to the muscle. So that's literally what's happening. Um, if we, I mean, science or bro science, we can call it whatever we want. Like that's actually what's happening when you're recomping is you're just trading fat for muscle and muscle is smaller than fat is. So you can't notice as much muscle. That's why it takes a long time to build uh, an aesthetic, a muscular physique. Um, and you can s clearly and easily see a lot of fat being lost. So it can be tricky. Um, how is it possible that you are still losing fat but weight is staying the same? Um, usually what that means is that you're still in a, a beginner inside the lifting. Like if you're a beginner in lifting, you can recomp pretty well. Um, if you've been in a hormonally compromised place for a long time and you switch everything up, you start dieting properly, you start training properly, you start getting enough recovery, you will see some recomposition. So there is some ways you can do it. Um, and it only lasts so long. So it's not that you're just going to continue down this road. At some point, it's going to level out and catch up, and you're not going to be able to continue gaining muscle and losing fat at the same time. The only other time I can think about this, and I feel like a lot of people have been asking me this stuff, this stuff lately. The only other time I can think of this is my situation right now is if you go through a surgery or you go through some kind of injury and you have muscle atrophy. You're not gaining new muscle and burning fat. You're burning fat and regaining old tissue. So... And not even that, like unless it's months and months and months, I was off of it for over a full month completely and I would say like half-assing it for – or my, actually my left leg where I had surgery, I was off of it fully for three months. Um, but it, it wasn't long enough to completely remove muscle tissue. I, like I didn't literally atrophy to the point where like the muscle tissue is literally gone. It just has no fluid, no hydration, no sodium, no carbohydrates, no glycogen stored in it. So it's very small and depleted and flat. As I train now, as I eat carbs, as I start to relearn how to activate that quad muscle, it's just replenishing that lost glycogen, and that's muscle memory. So that's another time. I'm recomping right now, but I, I feel like it's, a, it's not a true recomposition because I'm not building new muscle. So um, it does defy needing to be in a surplus to build muscle, but that's just the thing. You don't always need to be in a surplus. Would you say that the body is basically doing the same thing if you are in a very small deficit? And would it just be better for stress on the body to be at maintenance and wait out a recomp than being in a very small deficit? 100%. Like I think that – like, and that's actually what, like basically what I'm doing, right? I'm in a very small deficit because we're trying to cut for summer. Um, it's not a super aggressive one, but I'm in a small deficit and I'm regaining muscle. So yes, um, and for beginners, they can actually uh, gain muscle uh, in a small deficit as well. I would say that you're better off staying at maintenance – and letting a recomp happen as long as you can, for sure. If you're recomping at maintenance, you feel great. Don't change a thing. Don't speed it up. Just milk it. You'll never get the chance again. Do it as long as you can. After you get to a pretty good point or you get stuck or plateaued, I would actually put yourself in a small deficit if you're still a beginner. Because if you're still a beginner and you go in a small deficit, you may actually still be able to build muscle if you're really smart about your training and your intra-workout nutrition, so on and so forth. Um, after that, you kind of have to flip the script and start doing cutting and bulking, but in a smart, lean gaining way, which we actually have a question on today. So I'll get to that. Matt Roberts, PT. 
when a coach has been in the fitness industry for over 13 years now, personal training clients wanting to carry on learning and expanding knowledge as a dad with a two-year-old, what would you say carry on doing to – let me – there's quite a few few errors in this one, so uh, bear with me. Uh, come on, Matt. Double check, brother. Um, I'm just playing with you. When a coach has been in the industry for 13 years now, uh, he has a two-and-a-half-year-old, and he wants to carry on doing workshops. I'm just paraphrasing. Doing many courses on the Internet, carry on reading books, journals, or go back to the university to study more in-depth in sports science, strength and conditioning, biomechanics to progress onto a master's, then have the chance at teaching in the future, all which will make you a better coach when you're not a young buck anymore, single with lots of time on your hands to study. You know where I'm coming from as a, being a dad now yourself. Huh. There's no question mark here. So <laughs> I, don't, I literally don't know what you're asking. When a coach, I should probably, just so you guys know, you could, I'm, I'm literally an anchorman. You can ask me anything and I will read it. I don't, I don't filter these questions. I just take everything everybody's asking me and I just go one by one. Um, when a coach has been in the industry for over 13 years now, personal training clients wanting to carry on learning and expanding knowledge has a dad with, I think you meant as a dad with two and a half year old, what would you say? carry on doing to so I guess what would I recommend um yeah I mean like dude like I'm I'm the busiest guy ever I'm I'm super fucking busy and I still find time the reality is is we're in an age where we can find books and blogs and courses and shit on everything so every morning I make it a point to study Every morning I read something from nutrition training, no matter what. Um, I'm studying for a uh, my CISSN right now, so I'm going through the study guide every day, right? Like there's always something we can do. Um, there's online courses, MNU, PN, NCI. Um, there's so many in-person workshops. Wait for a workshop to come into your town. Follow people that are constantly doing seminars and workshops and just wait for them to come close to your town and make the commitment to drive out there. Um, I've brought in my wife and my daughter with me and I'm like, Hey, I'm going to put us up in a cool hotel, get room service, do whatever the hell you want all day. I'm going to go listen to like last time we did, I was in Portland with Christian Thibodeau. Like, I'm going to go listen to Paul Carter and Christian Thibodeau all day. I'll come back. We'll do dinner. We'll make it a night. And then the next day you get the hotel again, do whatever you want. And they had a blast and I went and did my thing, came back. And, and so, you know, sometimes you just got to roll with the punches, but at the end of the day, as coaches, we have to constantly educate ourselves. That never ends. So you have to find a way. Usually that involves blogs and reading and articles and research reviews like Mass or Alan Aragon's or Lyle McDonald's or Greg Knuckles and uh, uh, not Greg Knuckles. His is Mass uh, research review. Um, who's, who am I thinking of? James Krieger, Brett Contreras. We, they all have research reviews. So like dig into these things and you have to prioritize it and you have to put it in your schedule and you have to make time for it. That's all, that's all it is. Because I could sit here and say, oh. I have a good amount of clients. I have a team. We, we do cool things. I can just, you know, coast now. I don't need to learn anything. Or I can realize that the fitness industry is constantly evolving. Nutrition is constantly evolving. Me as a coach is constantly evolving. My, co my clients are constantly expecting more for better results. So I need to evolve as a coach. So every single day of my life, I will prioritize learning more about nutrition. That's why I wake up so early. It's not to work. It's, it's to study before work starts. That's my free time. Anyway. Jen Johnston, her first question, is it normal, actually I think she has, yeah, she has two, is it normal for athletes to get lightheaded during heavy lifts or C-stars? Normal, yes, optimal, no. 
Um, usually it's a case of too little hydration or sodium. So usually what I recommend to these people is like, hey, next time you work out, uh, take a quarter of a teaspoon of pink Himalayan salt, sw swish it down like 15 to 30 minutes prior to training with some water, see if that helps. If it helps, it was probably an electrolyte or a sodium imbalance. You're just not getting enough. And it's just like, okay, I got to start adding salt. So like for me, I add uh, a quarter teaspoon of pink Himalayan salt to everything I cook, every meal. Um, sometimes just regular uh, table salt if, if I, it doesn't match taste-wise. But no matter what, I add a little bit of salt to every meal. When you first do that, you're going to retain water. You're going to get a little bloated. That's okay. Um, your body self-regulates sodium levels really fucking well. So it will level out and then you can just – carry on doing it every day and you won't see these fluctuations. You'll, you'll maintain weight pretty easily. Um, but it's super important to get that sodium in cause it's going to support performance and you don't want to be bonking like that after your workouts or during your workouts. Her second question, have you found that doing fasted cardio stimulates a hunger response in clients? Yes. Um, if you think about energy and activity and energy output, like you're literally burning calories, you're using fuel. So you're depleting your body of fuel. So of course, you're going to crave more food or crave more calories afterwards. It's pretty normal. Same reason why after a training session, you get pretty hungry. It's a normal, normal phenomenon. Um, so I see it all the time. Uh, it's, it's normal, but like I would just make sure people have a meal plan post work, uh, post cardio anyway. I, I like doing my cardio fasted if I have cardio on the plan. Right now, I don't. I have cardio on my rest day, which is just like go on a 30-minute walk or ride the assault bike for 30 minutes at a low pace. Um, but it's more of like a recovery thing than a burn a bunch of calories thing. But I go on a walk in the morning every morning, and it definitely stimulates my hunger. Um, it also helps reduce blood sugar. It helps health. It helps burn calories. It helps um, all these different things, digestion even, because you're upright and you're moving, and it's actually going to stimulate your intestines, your colon a little bit. Um, so there's actually a lot of benefits to walking. Um, but I mean, if you do it fast in the morning, it's definitely going to cause a, uh, a hunger response. Adrian Frank Ling, how important are post-workout protein shakes? Having many food intolerances, dairy, beans, and eggs, I am having trouble finding protein powders that I can tolerate. Can eating easily digestible food shortly after workouts still be as effective? If so, what are your favorites? Secondly, do intra-workout carb powders need to be consumed with protein powder or can they work solo? Thank you so much. Yeah, no, I, I think there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. You can completely cut out whey and there's no issue whatsoever. Protein in general is the key. Now, you got to remember too, if, if you're eating a protein meal before your workout, let's say you're having eggs or chicken or steak or whatever your meal is, cottage cheese, Greek yogurt, it doesn't matter. Any type of protein pre-workout, uh, protein isn't going to be immediately digested unless it is in the form of protein powder. Therefore, whatever you ate pre-workout is actually going to be slowly fill, uh, filling your bloodstream with amino acids throughout your workout. So sometimes you're pre – and this goes the same thing with carbs. If you eat a bunch of carbs pre-workout, technically those carbs are still going to be floating into your uh, glucose stores throughout the workout and after the workout. So the post-workout meal is far less important to get to in a terms of replenishing protein and glycogen. It's much more important to spike insulin to drop cortisol in order to push the stress response down and push up the recovery response. So basically when you're looking at post-workout, you can say, hey, like I had a meal before my workout. Those amino acids are still in my system. I'm not too worried about it. I'm just going to get to a meal as soon as I can. If that's in 30 minutes, great. If it's in an hour and a half, that's totally fine too. It's not going to be the end of the world. Um, you're going to get the amino acids. You're going to be fine. You're, you're going to recover. And it doesn't matter what that protein is. Protein is protein. Um, as long as it's a highly bioavailable, which is usually animal products um, or protein powder. Now, for carbs, the reason we like carbs post-workout is 
yes, if you're really depleted, if you're uh, getting very, very lean, you will replenish some of those glycogen stores because you will further deplete your body. But if you're not shredded, you're not going to be depleting yourself from a bodybuilding style workout enough to be really worried about glycogen replenishment post-workout. It's just not going to happen. Um, your hunger is higher and your insulin sensitivity is higher. So there's some advantage there. Fix the hunger and insulin sensitivity being higher is going to lead to more uh, glycogen storage in the right places. Meaning if you eat closer to your workout, insulin sensitivity being higher, you're more likely to take those carbs and actually store them as muscle glycogen and muscle fuel. That's a high benefit. Like if, if that's just the reason like, hey, I'm not worried about losing muscle, but I might as well eat my, workout, my meal closer to my workout because I'm going to be more insulin, insulin sensitive. 100% agree with that. Um, it's not something you need to sprint for, but I think it's good. Now, the reason we like doing carbs, so you said intro, so secondly, do intro workout carb powders need to be consumed with protein powder or can they work? The reason I wanted to bring that up too is because intro workout carbs implies that you're doing during. Post-workout carbs implies that you're doing right afterwards, right? Post-workout carbs from a powder can be smart if you need to blunt that cortisol response. So let's say you are a high-stress individual, you have other stresses in your life, or you're just somebody who um, is really like type A, go, 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 high cortisol. You're going to want to have uh, like something like highly branched cyclic dextrin right after your workout. You don't need to have protein powder in there, um, but I would suggest having some kind of aminos in there because it has shown to benefit muscle growth. It just is going to – there's a really easy gastric uh, – a fast gastric emptying. So you run through that carbohydrate and the amino acids very quickly. So it's going to shuttle nutrients right to your muscle. It is beneficial. However, you don't need the amino acids, the essential amino acids which I choose over BCAs. But if you can have carbs after your workout, you can blunt cortisol because you're spiking insulin. So insulin and cortisol kind of have an inverse relationship. When we drink carbs post-workout, insulin goes up, cortisol goes down, recovery begins a little bit faster and more effectively. So if you're a high-stress individual, I would encourage a post-workout meal as soon as possible or doing a highly branched cyclic dextrin carb shake right after your workout and then going and getting your meal as soon as you can for the protein and, and the rest of the nutrients. Um, but the reason I prefaced that is I was actually talking to one of my mentor clients about this when we were talking about like programming nutrition for their athletes. Intra-workout carbs are interesting. We know that carbs spike insulin uh, and blunt cortisol. We know that insulin being higher is anabolic. So for some people, intra-workout carbs will help build muscle. And there's actually studies that show carbs and essential amino acids during a workout literally created more muscle fiber. So it literally helped people on a cross-sectional basis of the quad muscle that they tested grow more muscle. More muscle fibers were created. So it works. It's a fact. Um, the problem with this is, is for some uh types of athletes, we want cortisol high. So a strength athlete, a power lifter, uh, a Olympic lifter, a crossfitter, somebody who's doing very explosive, intense work, they might not want carbs during their workout if it's going to blunt cortisol because that cortisol being high is their fight or flight response that allows them to be so fucking explosive. If a saber-toothed tiger is chasing me as a caveman, my cortisol is going to go up, adrenaline is going to go up, I'm going to sprint, I'm going to get away. If I'm in parasympathetic mode and I can't get cortisol high to allow me to get in that fight or flight, I'm in trouble. So for some people, carbs don't work well. And it's kind of like a – it's a thing you got to test. Like if your sport is explosive, you should probably put it post-workout. If you're a bodybuilder, you can benefit from it during your workout for sure. However, some people do not enjoy carbs during their workout. Um, and I've actually found myself being kind of like this as of late. Like all the science proves that it's so great for you. But I have a tough time. I, I don't perform as hard. I don't get into it as much. So 
I think even though I train in a bodybuilding rep range and I could benefit from the muscle growth perspective of it, I truly believe that I thrive on cortisol. So, and it makes sense. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm busy. I, I can run on low sleep. Like it's not good for me, but I, I think I do well with that. So when I train, I like to take short rest periods. I like to go, go, go. I enjoy supersets. I enjoy EDTs. I'm just one of those individuals who likes to constantly be moving in my training session. Um, it's not always the most beneficial thing, but because of that, I don't like intro workout carbs as much because they slow me down. They make me feel a little bit more calm and I really enjoy being amped the fuck up inside of training. So, and that's a personal preference. It's not science-based. It's just something I've noticed and I've heard other people say the same. So I think you have to kind of test these things out with people. Coach Longest, how do you auto-regulate within slash across sessions and weeks? So, Auto-regulation is basically just me auto-regulating things, right? Like I'm going to auto-regulate my training and I don't think auto-regulation is a good method unless you're an advanced individual. And the reason I say that is because it's really hard to auto-regulate. Um, today, this morning, I auto-regulated my training. I was supposed to do four sets of six on the incline press and I've been progressing every single week, but I just did not feel it today. So I did four sets of 10, I did a lighter weight and I just chased a pump. That's me auto-regulating. Um, I just wasn't into it this morning. I was a little bit tired. I had some brain fog. I just knew I wouldn't be able to get after it. And the last thing I want to do is disappoint myself because I can't lift as heavy or hurt myself because I'm trying to lift too heavy. So I auto-regulated and I changed it. Um, I auto-regulated my pull-down because I'm finally working out in my garage again and I had a neutral grip pull-down. I don't have my pulley machine set up yet and I don't have my chin-up bar set up yet. So I did a moto row where you sit in a quadruped position and you're pulling a band from overhead laterally. So I'm doing the pull-down motion, but I'm in a quadruped on the floor, like a crawl position. So that's auto-regulating exercise variation. That's auto-regulating rep range and intensity based on how I feel. But you have to be pretty aware of your body and, and really be able to drop the ego. You know, I woke up and I could tell like I wasn't in my, my A game. Um, and I had to drop the ego. Like I've been progressing consistently. Like I'm getting back into training hard since my surgery. Like the last thing I wanted to do was that. But I knew it would be more beneficial than me just burning myself out. My f I have to get up at 3 in the morning tomorrow for my flight because um, I have to be at my friend's house that we're driving to the airport to get there by f uh, 4.30 because our flight's at 5.30. Like it's, it's horrid. I knew that going hard and pushing myself to burn out would not be a good idea today. So I auto-regulated, but it's hard to be able to do that. You need to be pretty self-aware. Um, as far as like how I program that in for clients, I don't really program auto-regulation, but what I do program in, and maybe this is more of what you're referring to, is intensity uh, undulation. And what I mean by that is not every session we're going to go super hard. So I'm going to undulate, which means kind of wave up and down, right? You're, you have like high days, low days, high days, like calorie, carb cycling is, is carb undulation. Intensity undulation is something I did in FIT really well, I think, and I did it really well in functional muscle too, and it's actually something I, I program in a lot of my clients' programs. Every day we're not going to go balls to the wall, but some days we do need to go balls to the wall. So we're going to have a day where we're driving intensity up. We're going to have a day where we're driving the pump and the uh, more of a metabolic fatigue, so it's not as hard on your nervous system, but it's more hard on your muscular system. On the intense days, you're not going to get a super big pump, but we're going to lift heavy. We might go really hard on the salt break. Those are intense from a neural perspective. The next day is intense from a muscular perspective. The next day is low intensity on all perspectives. We're jumping on the rower, and I want you to go through full range of motion and just sit on there for 20 minutes at an easy pace. Simple, right? Walking. So now we're going like 
high in one place, high in another place, low in the other, and then low across the board. Then we repeat that cycle. So undulating and cycling your intensities throughout the week is a great way to not really need as often uh, deloads as often. It's a great way to avoid burnout, and it's a great way to work different energy systems and actually improve across the board. So I'm a big fan of that. And Anvakara, sorry if I butchered that, I know I did. My question is about reverse dieting. I finished my cut where my calories were 1,300 the last two weeks, 40% deficit, and macros were at 170 protein, 34 fat, and 80 carbs. Should I keep my protein as it is while I increase my carb and fat, or the protein is too high? Or is the protein too high? Am I... I'm not sure if I need to recalculate my deficit percentage. Sorry, that kind of got wonky. I'm going to pull up the message because she also added um, – oh, no, don't tell me I deleted it. Because I asked her her weight because I was like, well, what is the weight at? Because that's a that's what makes a big difference. Um, oh, I don't have it. So um, – but – her weight was – she was pretty light. So I know I said 1,300 calories and it sounds low, but it, it's not crazy low for how uh, how light she was. So it makes sense to end a diet that low um, in an extreme setting. Now, I don't like bringing people to 1,300 unless we have an extreme goal. But if you, you do it, you got to do what you got to do. Um, so if you're protein – so basically, like I know this is very specific to her, but the reason I wanted to use this question because I actually answered her in my DM and gave her a lot of information. Um, but – Basically, like, should I keep my protein as it is while I increase my carbon fat protein is too high? Yes. In most reverse dieting settings, you should keep your protein that high unless you're consuming 1.5 grams of protein because you went into an extreme deficit and it's just not comfortable or uh, feasible for you to continue. It's not enjoyable for you to continue eating that much protein. I wouldn't lower it. I would keep it at that 1 to 1.2 range and just keep it static and allow yourself to have the satiety of that, especially until you get yourself to maintenance. Once you get yourself to maintenance, you can lower it to 0.8 to 1 grams per pound um, if you choose. You don't need to. Um, and you will absolutely need to recalculate your deficit. And that's one of the other things I wanted to point out. So during a reverse, you should keep your protein for the most part and just slowly bring up carbs and fats. In your situation, I would probably bump up carbs easily 20 grams and fat easily for 10 grams. Because 34 grams of fat and 80 grams of carbs is really low. Give yourself a good little bump to get your metabolism kicking and get adherence a little bit easier. You just finished a cut. Sometimes it's best to make a bit of an aggressive approach and add a good amount of calories and then taper off and go very slow. But it also depends on your biofeedback. If you were in a short cut and you still feel totally fine, you can go a little bit slower. If you've been in it for a while and you feel kind of shitty, you should probably bump it up quicker and go more of like a recovery diet approach versus a reverse diet. And you said, I'm not sure if I need to recalculate my deficit percentage. Yes, because you said that you were in a 40% deficit and that led you to 1,300 calories. Your maintenance changes as you diet. So this is why I want to bring this question up because a lot of people will go through a reverse diet. They go through any type of diet and they go, okay, I'm going to bring my calories back up to maintenance after my diet. Um, I'm going to jump it back up to 2,000 because that's where I started this diet. And it's like, no, 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 no. Your metabolism is a very adaptive thing as, as me and Dr. Jade, uh, myself and Dr. Jade Tata talked quite a bit about in the last episode. Um, it's a very adaptive thing. So as you diet and as calories go low, you're actually going to slowly reduce your metabolism. Your metabolism is actually going to get slower and slower as time goes. Um, because of that, we know that your, your current maintenance is no longer what it once was. So recalculating that deficit, it's more like you need to recalculate – 
your maintenance. That deficit percentage is no longer a 40% deficit. It's probably like a 20% deficit. It will shrink as you go because your metabolism will slow down as you diet. Um, I'm going to link the, our latest uh, blog article article written by Lisa. Shout out to Lisa, one of our coaches. She wrote the article, uh, Downhill Metabolism, What Happens When We Diet. And it's all about uh, met- metabolic adaptation basically. And this is the process that occurs. So when you get to the end of a diet, you need to recalculate and redecide what your true maintenance is now because as you've dieted, your metabolism has slowed down. So it's not the best thing to jump right back up to maintenance after a diet. Um, even in the Matador study, if you look at the Matador study where they diet for two weeks, they uh, diet break for a week or two or however the pattern went, those maintenance periods, those diet break periods actually got lower as they go. This is something not a lot of people realize or not a lot of people talk about. They think, oh, like I have my maintenance phases and then I have my diet phases and as I go, I just keep my maintenance phases. It's like, no, as you lose weight and you have less body mass, your metabolism slows down because it needs less to function. As you diet and your calories get lower and more frequently you have lower calories, your metabolism slows down. Therefore, your maintenance is lower again. So even with an approach where you have frequent diet breaks, you really always have to recalculate that maintenance level and constantly bring it down because otherwise you're, you're maintaining or you're shooting for maintenance calories when they're not true maintenance. It's too high. Well, this is the first podcast in a while um, that hasn't had any questions non-related to fitness or nutrition. I mean, even the George Costanza one, this is great. Um, I always laugh when I say this name. Ja la 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 three two one, and it's literally ja la 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 three two one. Do you think that recomp is primarily achieved through a certain macro ratio, or is it, or is really dependent on periods of lean gaining slash cutting, or is it from changing macros to specific ratios? So, kind of already covered the recomp thing, so I'll touch on this briefly. But I think it's. I don't think it's achieve primarily through a certain macro ratio. Um, I think it's all dependent on all the things I talked about before. It's, it's highly dependent on the individual's current situation and past situation. If you even are in the, the ball, like if, if you even have the cards to play, like if, if you even have the cards to do a recomp. Um, so it's not always even possible. So it's not really up to macros or anything like that or anything we can do specifically. Um, usually it, for anybody who's not a brand new beginner or didn't just go through surgery, um, or, um, had a, a huge, like Meredith recomped big time. She worked with me for, she's been working with me for 15 months. She weighs exactly how much she weighs when she started. I'll link that blog in the show notes too. Um, but we added a significant amount of calories. We changed all of her training from cardio, high intensity circuits to strength training, and we added a ton of calories. She lost a ton of fat, gained a ton of muscle, looks completely different, but her weight stayed the same. That's a good, uh, another good one for recomp. If we, if you're in a position where, yeah, you've been training a while, but you haven't been doing what's optimal for your body and you haven't been dieting the right way and we can completely change everything, you can do a recomp. Um, but I do think it's kind of dependent on lean gaining and cutting. I think recomps are more of a, a process of like, okay, I'm going to next spend the next eight months um, lean gaining. And what that means is eight weeks of being in a surplus, slowly gaining, a small surplus, slowly gaining size. And then I'm going to do a four to six week mini cut to just keep my body fat levels in check. And I'm going to rinse and repeat for eight months. And then I'm going to go on a conservative cut for four to six months and just get shredded. Like that's a recomp and it, it takes a long time. And I do think that's usually the process. However, I do see clients come to me, um, and they might be eating, 2,500 calories, let's say, but their protein is super low, their fat is too high, and their carbs are kind of like wavy, like up and down. And what I will do is increase their 
protein significantly. Um, I will drop their fat to the minimum effective levels for health. So they feel great. They perform great. Their blood work would be great. Um, but we're not getting any extra on top of that. And then I fill the rest with carbs. So they're on a higher carb, higher protein, moderate fat diet. And I didn't touch their calories. I just tweaked their macro ratios. And I do see that have a big effect on body recomposition. Last question for today. The Tony Butchman. No, Butch Buchanan. Buchanan. That's a hard one to say, dude. Buchanan. The Tony Buchanan. What's the best assessment to do on a new client? I don't even think I can answer this because it really depends on what the client is coming for. Um, if we're looking from a training perspective, I would say some variation of the functional movement screen. Um, I use a very dumbed down. I think the functional movement screen itself is very hard to put a client through unless you're there with their the FMS equipment and you have all the power of coaching them through it. Um, for somebody who is working with me and they live in Germany or Australia or New York or wherever it is and I'm here in Seattle, for them, I'm going to use the dumbed-down version of the FMS. I took the FMS and I looked at what are we doing inside the FMS that I'm really trying to pay attention to here. Ankle mobility, knee stability, hip mobility, thoracic mobility, overhead reach, um, flexibility in their hamstrings, tightness in their hip flexors. These are the main things I want to see, right? So how can I take this test and I can make it so simple that somebody can do it in their living room? That's what I did. So I would suggest using the FMS as a landmark or a foundation or a blueprint and then creating it in a way that allows you to do it in a simplified way because you have to understand clients got to be able to do it without you there and then as far as nutritional assessment I honestly think tracking so I we literally just have clients track for you know at least three days but ideally a week or two and then we can see what they're doing so now if somebody comes on board if they've never tracked before I'm not going to make them track for two weeks before we start but for somebody who's been tracking for two weeks that is the assessment let me look through every meal you've eaten in the last two weeks that allows me to truly assess what you're doing what you're eating how you're eating how much you're eating and what I need to do to change it to get in the right direction so I think any assessment like before you think of a cool method or a cool tool or a cool piece of paper that tells you this is the assessment, you have to ask, where is the client going? What are they doing right now? And what am I looking for? So for training, again, what am I looking for? I'm looking for instability, stability, mobility in certain areas, flexibility, overhead reach, like things like that. What do I need to do in order to see those things with this client and test them? That's the best assessment. So it changes. And that's the beauty of being a coach. You got to have the art of coaching to be able to do that. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomperformance.com slash sign up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. 
This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at Cody at BoomBoomPerformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.